Hello and welcome to the Gentleman's Journal podcast, a weekly discussion all about success, modern business and the lives of entrepreneurs. I'm Joe Bullmore. I'll be your host for the day. And my guest on this afternoon's episode is Justin Byamshaw, the chairman of the Evening Standard and the Independent, the director of the Felix Project and several other things besides. Justin's career has spanned many companies and several decades, but it all comes back to a few familiar traits. An eye for the main chance, a winning way with people and an uncanny sense of timing. From the privatisation of BT to the manic days of the dot-com boom, Justin's successes trace the story of modern entrepreneurship. Right place, right time, right chap. Today's episode, recorded in his corner office at Northcliffe House, is a must-listen for anybody interested in getting to the top and staying there. Justin, thanks very much for joining us on the Gentleman's Channel podcast. Thank you for having me. Not at all. Uh, as I was doing my research on you, I came across a quote from Geordie Gregg, who described you as the serial entrepreneur and the cleverest businessman of his generation at Oxford. Yeah, I think that should be qualified by the fact that Geordie's my oldest friend. <laughs> OK, right. So he's been quite kind there. Yeah. Um, but I met, um, I met him for the first time at the uh, first ever cash point machine at Oxford when we were both there. And we oh, were both wow. lining up to get our first five pounds. <laughs> and he couldn't use the machine and I could. So that's probably why he thinks I'm cleverer than him. <laughs> OK. But he, he, he touches on serial entrepreneur then. You've worked for many, many businesses and yes. started up various things in your, in your time. What was your first entrepreneurial venture? So my first entrepreneurial venture came about completely by chance. I had graduated from university and I was a graduate trainee at an advertising agency. Mm. I was completely useless at the job, hated it. Uh, and within probably about a month of being fired, I jumped okay. to work for one of our clients, which right. was then probably the most unsexy job you could do, which was working for British Telecom. But I now post-rationalised that because two months after I joined... British Telecom was privatised and that so for a 24-year-old there were the most incredible job opportunities. And my job was to uh, persuade television stations to generate telephone revenue, which sounds odd. And somebody said to me and my future partner, uh, there's this programme called Opportunity Knocks, I think it's now called uh, Song for Europe or... Mm. Um, no. Anyway, it's a talent show. And... Uh, they run every week and they get about 300 viewer postcards voting on the winner. Why don't you try and do it uh, on the telephone instead? And we said, well, that sounds a bit mad, but we'll go along. And in fact, my partner pitched it to them and they said, yeah, that's, a, that's an idea. We'll do that. So the next series of BBC Opportunity Knocks ran with a telephone vote. And in programme one, rather than getting 300 postcards, they got 350,000 telephone calls. Wow. And so we left the following week <laughs> and we set up our business legion, which uh, provided premium rate services to tele mainly to television stations all around the world, yeah. voting especially, um, uh, when we were both in our mid-twenties. And it was a case of being in the right place at the right time. Wow. And we ended up in about 12 countries with joint ventures, with big media companies, much bigger than us in each country. Um, doing anything from um, premium rate horoscopes to sports results to reader competitions and particularly tele telephone voting. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, by 1994, it had grown. I think we had about uh, 160 people and we were turning over about 
20 million pounds and making about 4 million profit and we thought this is we can't manage this we don't have the skills yeah and we sold business to Matra Hachette okay and that was so I was the sort of serendipitous entrepreneur that's how I started and how many years since you left university at this point uh, I I went to work for BT two years after I left university okay. and I left BT after about another two years okay. I was about to go to INSEAD actually I was about to go to business school but I jacked that and decided to right go start the business okay. and we were backed by some guys who we were like were like one of these sort of teenage boy bands with a unscrupulous manager we were backed with about 400,000 pounds of which we got we got loans against our mortgages for 250 and we got a syndicate of golf club members to give us 150,000 and they said we had to pay them back within 18 months at an 18% um 18% premium wow. and if we hadn't done that rather than them owning 30% they would ratchet up to to 80% of the business and that's what should have happened, but we just got lucky. I mean, we, we, we paid their money back um, within a few months and, uh, uh, and didn't really look back after yeah. that. Um, so that's how it started. Incredible. Um, and at that young age, I suppose they didn't call it this back then, but did you ever have sort of imposter syndrome? Did you ever think we shouldn't be in the rooms we're in? Uh, no, I had the opposite. Uh, the very opposite happened. So I thought um, when we sold and I was just just in my early 30s at that point, I thought that I was probably the best businessman that ever been. And um, <laughs> I would then invest in other people's businesses and tell them how to, how to make it work. Yeah. Uh, and that was, for about five years, a total disaster. Okay. Because what I learned was, unless you are living your business and working in it 24 hours a day and paying attention to every sort of detail you're going to come unstuck and I thought that I could from a great height invest my money and impart my wisdom on other entrepreneurs and that absolutely didn't work so I wised up quite quickly just okay. at the time of the dot-com boom Fine. which was a good time to do it um, and of course like many people I went from being rich to extraordinarily rich on paper um, okay. for a matter of months before the crash came but fortunately I was able to sell a few things as well sure. uh, and by that stage I'd, I was ready to start my next business yeah. and was certainly a lot more um, lot savvier. Okay, were there uh, any kind of massive failures or problems towards the dot com boom? Oh yeah yeah. I had one business with which I, I had, I mean many people have similar stories I'm sure but I think my State was worth about four hundred million, uh, wow. three to four hundred million, and, Just in... and within a couple of weeks it was worthless. And I remember there was a race towards race to whether we would IPO before we went bust. That's, oh, that was that was how it, how it went. But there was another business, um, a telecoms company, that uh, I invested in and worked in a bit, uh, gave them some advice, and I bailed out on day one of the float. And I remember. Um, for some reason, I slept in late, and the float, the the the, the stock opened at eight o'clock, and I didn't kind of catch up with it till nine thirty, by which time it had jumped thirty percent. So I sold out completely. Felt really pleased with myself until fourteen weeks later, I saw that the market cap of the business had gone from two hundred million to one point two billion, wow. uh, and I think it had seventeen million of turnover. So by that stage, everybody was kind of laughing at me and selling out at much greater price. But then, um, about three months later than that, that company also went bust okay. completely. So there were two founders of that business. 
one of whom is a was not great and is a very very rich man and the other was a very smart guy who stayed with the business and he's now okay i don't know where he is so is there a lesson so in that is there uh, timing is everything okay and you don't even know and, when the timing's and, right and, and i think as an entrepreneur and as an investor in volatile markets timing is much more important yeah. than skill and i've also learned that it's the the uh, validity or the strength of the business idea is much much less important than the strength of the yeah. management team the management team if they're good will adapt they'll find a way of making an idea work even if it wasn't the idea that yeah. they originally went with sure. and you were originally invested with invested in they will they will adapt um, yeah. so that's the thing whereas people still to this day think it's all about the idea yeah. and actually if you look at the really success google wasn't the first to, first search engine uh, facebook wasn't the first social media business of its type um, Amazon wasn't the first uh, e-commerce business mm. you know but they saw what other people had done and did it better yeah uh, and I don't know if you know a business called HelloFresh yeah Actually, of course should be part of your they they're the masters of that they they looked at what was working on the west coast and in New York and then they just copied yeah uh, and they've done it very well I think do you see some of that kind of manic energy that led up to the dot-com boom happening now with lots of startups that don't make any money at all and never have any proven yeah. way of ever making money but yet they're valued in the billions some of them yeah um, well they're not many valued at the they're, but no. something like uber for example has no yeah. business model that would ever turn a profit in the foreseeable future well i don't know actually i think uber uber's model is an interesting one uh, and i would have thought that they might but you're certainly right that there are a lot of very inflated yeah. There are a lot of very inflated prices out there. There's, there's, there's no doubt about that. But, but I wouldn't put Uber in that, particularly in that camp. Okay. So post two thousand, post the dot com boom, what was your next kind of venture after that? Um, God, be many. <laughs> um, One of them was particularly interesting. Looking through your CV, was the the poker channel. You poker set up channel, a dedicated po a dedicated poker channel and sitting behind it a online gaming site. Right. And that actually was an interesting example of a very good management team, an okay idea, but yeah. that didn't work. Um, we were outspent by some of the big American and Israeli mm. sites, and uh, it's all about liquidity. It's all about the number of players you have, and we, we never got to a sufficient scale. But I'm really pleased that the two guys who started it are now kind of more or less running William Hill. Uh, right. They were very, very able and they ended up not as entrepreneurs and that was one that that, yeah. that, that didn't work. Were you a big poker player yourself? I've never played a game of poker in my, <laughs> really? poker in my life. And what, yeah. I mean, it's were enough. you... I say I have enough gambling in my exactly. life and I'm not a good gambler. Generally. Okay, fine. <laughs> so you don't need to know necessarily the ins and outs of your business when you talk about people living 24 hours their business. Well, I think that you make a very good point. I think probably... Um, had I been a poker player, I possibly wouldn't have invested. I probably would have understood yeah. the psyche of the poker player better and why they'll be constantly shopping around for better deals on other sites. Uh, so, yeah. Um, and now, of course, we're sitting here in your office in Northcliffe House, and you're the chairman of the Evening Standard and the Independent. Um, how did you make that that move from telecoms and media into print media? So I've always seen myself as being in digital media, whether okay. it was Legion, my first business, I call that the first ever digital media business, or the Poker Channel is another good example. But in 2008, my friend Geordie Gregg, who we discussed previously, who's now about to be editor of the Daily Mail, how times have changed, he was uh, editing Tatler, and he'd been there eight years and was kind of frustrated and wanted his career to yeah. move on. And Just 10 years ago? 
uh, it was 10 years ago, yeah, and wow. he said to me, I'd really like to edit a national newspaper. <laughs> and I thought, yeah, that's great. And he said, I think the way to do it is you need to find someone who wants to sell a national newspaper and then someone who wants to buy a national newspaper. I said, yep, that's, that's <laughs> probably great, but not easier said than done. But he is a man of huge resourcefulness, mm. and that is exactly what he did. He found Jonathan Rothermere, who wanted to sell the standard, and he found Alexander Lebedev in Moscow, a friend of his who wanted to buy it. And he was an editor, not a business people person. So he said to me, so I've done all that, but I don't know how to do the deal. So that's really where I came in. Yeah. And he and I became shareholders in the standard. And then a year later, uh, the independent became available. The deal I did with the Lebedevs was I said, I'll buy that for you. But what, what I would like you to do is split it out so that you have a digital business and a print business. Mm. I don't think the print business will survive, but the digital business will. And I will invest in the digital business. And, and so we ended up owning that 60-40 together. Yeah. And sure enough, we bought the independent. We um, were the smallest newspaper team in the country, but we're probably the most imaginative. We realized that the independent wouldn't support itself on its own. So we launched the first national newspaper in Britain in the last well, since the today, so in the last 30 years, and the only national newspaper in the last probably 50 years that has been successful, and that's the I newspaper. And the way we did it was we ran it entirely off the independent cost base, and we had a dedicated journalist team of about five or six journalists. So it was a marginal cost business, and that is a new newspaper that now sells 250,000 copies and makes about 9 million profits. So... We had to do it. We had no choice because we yeah. were the smallest player in the market. And similarly, we took the Evening Standard free because it was not working as a as a small regional paid-for newspaper. So we had no choice and we made that work as well. So we had quite a good track record and I was pretty sure that we could make a digital-only independent yeah. work. So sure enough, when we came to Sell I uh, a couple of years ago and we took the independent digital-only, everybody told us we would fail. Oh, actually, I've got a story here. When we launched I, do you know Richard Desmond? You know yeah, I mean? of course. So he said, I remember his email, I've kept his email. He said, you're fucking mad. You will sell between eight, eight and 15,000 copies. Uh, and week one, we sold 230,000 and we've been there ever since. <laughs> so it was really satisfying. I won't tell you the coded to that story. It's a great bit, but it's not really, it's not really repeatable, unfortunately. <laughs> okay. Um, what was that Richard's response? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Not a happy bunny. Uh, no, 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 no. He's, I mean, he's a, he's a smart guy, but uh, he made a bed. <laughs> okay, right. <laughs> um, so the Independent um, has been a huge success. So we had a print title that was selling when we closed it, 30,000, 35,000 copies of cover price. Mm -hmm. We now have a, uh, a news site that is the sixth biggest digital news site in the US. Uh, it is has a monthly audience of about of over 100 million unique visitors and will make about 6 million this year profit and will grow substantially next yeah. year and again no one thought we'd do that and that's been that's been a fantastic investment right. and that's been without doubt the best investment I've ever, ever made um, there seems a lot of serendipity in the in the kind of in the start of that story that uh, there was at the start and I credit a lot of people with other people with my success and I you're, you're right credit luck also but I when the independent was bought I could see that it was mm. such a strong brand that it would survive digitally and flourish yeah and that it did all kind of and 
things don't usually play out exactly as you think they're going to, but that was a rare example where yeah. it did. So I don't, I don't credit serendipity with that one. Okay. Although I do certainly come into the newspaper business. But yeah. I love, I love newspapers. It's a really tough industry, but of course, but it's fun. And what do you remember of those um, the early days of negotiations? Because you've got some big players there. You've got Geordie Gregg. You've got Lord Rothermere. Oh, those and, negotiations. Yeah, and you've got the Lebedevs. Uh, well, how did it stay under wraps? Did you meet in restaurants? Did you meet in? That's a very good question, and we kept it under wraps. It took forever for various reasons. And How long forever? A year? A year, and it didn't leak for 11 months and three weeks. So, okay, so, so you nearly got there. So we nearly got there, um, and then it did, and it was amazing to me that it hadn't because none of the journalists here knew. You know, and it's kind of their business to know these things. And but where did you meet in in, in open, or did you? How did you discuss it? We, a year of negotiations. So in lawyers' offices mainly, okay. but um, we had an unknown quantity in Alexander in Moscow, who actually turned out to be extremely discreet. But Russians do business often in a different way. But that didn't work out that way. He was incredibly discreet, and the Mail are a very professional organisation, and yeah. they they kept the lid lid on it. So we were really? lucky. We weren't so lucky with selling Eye to Johnson Press. That leaked very early, and we weren't so lucky buying the Independent. Right. That also leaked early. But that's, you know, if you employ a media editor, and you're, you know, who's sitting, yeah, of course, twenty foot from me, it's it's not it's not it's not easy. No, stories going to get <laughs> yeah, out. Stories, stories. Yeah. yeah. And what what has been your experience People working like, with Lebedev? Uh, well, there are two. Of course, I'm, I, uh, Yevgeny is is has become a great friend. He's a, he's very smart, not no conventional experience in terms of Course. education and work, but he's good listener, smart, makes good decisions, takes can take his time over them. Yeah, uh, Alexander, um, who is more mercurial, who made his billions, I guess, uh, in after the fall of Soviet Union, after the, when the Berlin Wall came down, he is less involved. He's more distant, but um, he made his money in banking. Yeah. but actually. Um, Yevgeny is the better newspaper man. He's the, got the better, better instinct um, for how it works. And how how involved is he in the operations of the? Of the uh, he's involved man? in. He's quite involved. He's involved in strategy. Uh, he's involved in um, the big hirings and firings. And um, but he lives mainly in Italy, so he's not he's not sort of day to day involved or week to week. Uh, he has a he has a team here to do it, but um, he's. He's got good editorial instincts, good yeah. hire of editorial people. Yeah. Notably the Chancellor of the Exchequer of was, was, came out of left field. Nobody saw yes. that coming. And that was, uh, that was I'm sure you were involved in that decision-making process as well. Uh, it was it was Yevgeny's decision. Definitely he talked to me about it and we discussed it. And I was actually in India when George joined and I knew it was going to be a big national story. Mm. And so I got extremely involved then. And the issue for us was how did we make, how did we get the message across that this was a coup for the Evening Standard in amongst the inevitable story that this was five jobs, George Osborne uh, selling the electors of Tatton where he was an MP yeah. short. That We knew that would be the story. And the way we did it was um, uh, Amol Rajan, the media editor of the BBC, was given the story exclusively. Yeah. And, but it gave us the opportunity to mould the story in him to recognise a true aspect of it, which was that it was a coup for the standard. So once you lead the agenda, 
uh, the news agenda in that way, then often the rest yeah. of the rest of the media will follow on, and that's that, that worked. Sometimes it doesn't, but it worked well then. So I had a lot of involvement, very with, from actually from an ashram in India. So it was quite difficult. Okay, right. It was quite difficult to do. I'm sure yeah. it was. Yeah. It was a surprise to lots of people, chiefly I suppose, because George Osborne doesn't have a journalistic background. No. Um, and there were other names that were, that were in the mix they who, were, were, who yeah. were more traditional journalists. Did it surprise you? When Yevgeny first told me that this was on his mind, I said, you must be, you must be joking. That, I mean, that is going to be a disaster. But then the more I thought about it, I thought about all the advantages. And of course, he hasn't been a journalist, but he has been at the sharp end of the major news stories for 10 years. He's been trying to manage on the other side of the fence of from course. us those same stories and therefore has fantastic experience. Plus, yeah. he's an extremely bright guy. Uh, he's a guy who's prepared to un- who understood what he didn't know and was prepared to, was prepared to learn it. Uh, and he also comes with a set of connections and a network that very few journalists have. Mm. Um, so for, for London's paper that wants to be a sort of global city newspaper, he actually turned out to be a very good choice. And that was a really good example of Yevgeny thinking, you know what, I think this could be a good idea. Yeah. And me saying, it's probably your worst idea ever. Um, <laughs> to, to coming around thinking, you know, you've got, actually, this could work. Yeah. And um, he also brought, a, I guess, a bit of X factor, a bit of kind of glamour in the fact that he would been the second most powerful man in the country and was very nearly the prime minister, I suppose. Yeah, well, I think he was the guy running the country. Frankly. Yeah. Um, yes, he did. And... He said, with his customary lack of modesty, I think this is the most publicity the Evening Standard have ever had in its 190-year history. <laughs> and he was probably um, right. He was probably right, although there's some great standard stories, but he's probably right. Um, <laughs> when we took it free, we thought that would be the biggest story. But somebody pointed out that we weren't even the first, first person to take it free. The first person to take it free was Joseph Goebbels, who dropped um, a fake Evening Standard across London okay. in, in autumn 1941. <laughs> right. Wow. Uh, yeah. Different kind of yeah. free shit. Yeah. So, yeah, no, he, he does have that X factor. Yeah. Um, that's for sure. Yeah. How do you think he's changed the tone and the feel of the newspaper in that time? Well, he sent me an email on Monday, which um, might have been YouGov Research, saying that... Uh, 45% of MPs now read the standard. Uh, and I can tell you, 45% of MPs do not read any other newspaper. Sure, so he's true, clearly yeah. moved the dial in terms of not only politicians, but other opinion leaders, cultural and business opinion leaders, who now feel they really have to read the standard, mm. um, when that might not have been the case before. Uh, there's a lot of party politics, um, depending on your point of view, if that's a good thing or a bad thing. Um, um, but certainly there are some political figures like Trump and Corbyn that are universally appealing to, or interesting to people. Yes, of course. And then there are others who absolutely aren't. <laughs> um, and that's probably that, that division has heightened over the last yeah. year or so. It's a crazy thing uh, to think about that every single day, 80 or 90 pages of news is created. What, what time does that process start? Does it start the day before? Or does, it starts the day before. When do the editors get into the office? Um, so they'll be coming in from 6 in the morning. Okay. And we'll go off stone at about 11. So uh, it's fantastic when a story breaks in, let's say, uh, well, fantastic when a story breaks in Asia, which is six, seven hours ahead of us, because then we can really be the first. Or if there's something happening in Parliament early, or, or, or a major news story here in the morning, and then we can we absolutely set the news agenda, and we can see that in the 
in the afternoon radio and TV schedules, PM and whatever. And so the standard is kind of different from any other newspaper in that way, in yeah. that it will it can lead the agenda. It's quite hard to lead the agenda if you are a newspaper that has gone off stay in seven o'clock the night before right, you're being published. Whereas if it's quite important to be to be read the same day that you're written. You know, yeah. That's that's quite unusual. There are not many not many not many newspapers doing that now. Yeah. What's the atmosphere like on the floor with ten minutes to it's, go? It's 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 good. It's all it's you always feel a sort of frisson, you always feel attention. Sure. And that will be lost because increasingly newsrooms are recognising that they're not funneling their activity to a single deadline at 7 o'clock at night or 11 o'clock in the morning. They're kind of 24 hours. So that, that sort of building excitement that you get as you approach the offstone time you know, is starting to be lost. But we still have it on the standard. It's a, it's a fun time to be around. I can't yeah. say I'm... Oh, no, 11 o'clock I'm there, but I can't say I'm around at 6am too often. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and you speak about the kind of changing landscape and, and the digital aspect. I mean, even in the last kind of two years alone, it seems that the media landscape has changed so drastically and Twitter and social media has become such an important part of the conversation. Does that threaten newspapers in some way? Um, I think there are a lot of things that are threatening newspapers at the moment and newspapers need to reinvent themselves. So whether it's the standard going free and becoming a kind of digital proxy, what I mean by that, it's consumed free, it's consumed at the point of access and it's consumed in about 20 minutes. It's a kind of a digital proxy. We all need to reinvent ourselves and social media. Twitter is probably our number one news source now. And it's, a, it's, 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 it's more important than any of the traditional news feeds, probably. That's where we're getting, wow. our journalists are getting a lot of stories. So what do you call it, frenemy? I don't know what the word is, but, 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 uh, yeah. but social media is useful to us. But it's also, yeah, started to eat, eat part of our lunch in other areas. Right, yeah. Yeah. And there's, of course, there's another another tribe as well who might be eating your lunch, and I suppose that's the the new media agencies like BuzzFeed and Huffington Post. Not much. Post. Not, Not much. much. No, if you look at their numbers, they're they're small. Uh, and sorry to plug my 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 platform again, but if you look at the independence audience and then you compare that to BuzzFeed's or Huffington Post's. Mm you really get to see the difference. You right. Know, they are not, they're not big compared to us. You know, we're, we're much, much bigger. They have had some coups um, with staff and, and kind of the personnel they managed to attract. They've, they've gone from being a kind of frivolous um, website to serious news. They instance. have. They have. Um, BuzzFeed certainly has some scoops. Mm. Um, but I... Personally, I question their name, and their, you know, you still, still, if you talk to people, if you, a lot of people, they think about BuzzFeed, they think about ten cute things that cats do, which is a bit unfair to them because they have come on, and and Huffington Post also, they're a serious news provider, but but we don't feel threatened by them at all. We're very yeah. confident in our journalism, uh, and that's been a surprise. I would have expected more disruption from the pure play news outlets than than we've seen. Okay. Um, and what do you envisage might be the biggest threats in the next two or three years? Uh, to the standard, um, we, we monitor Wi-Fi on the tube closely and see you know, what will happen because if people can use their phones, um, maybe things change. But the experience from cities like Malmo and Sweden, Stockholm, Copenhagen suggest we shouldn't be too worried about that. Mm. Uh, I think it's just, a, you know, we are beset on all sides, but I think people do have to understand that if you want proper news coverage, it costs money. And people aggregating news, social media platforms do that, uh, and other people inventing news or putting out fake news, something's going to have to give. You know, as you know, good journalism costs money. And at some point, 
the reader, the viewer will re- will will have to recognise that. Will recognise that because at the moment, then it's not sufficiently recognised. On on the subject of journalism, there may be people listening who who are very interested in becoming journalists, either as their first career or perhaps a second one. Do you think it's still a worthwhile profession to go into? Well, I'm probably not the person to ask because I'm not a journalist, but I think it's... um, I have lots of friends on the floor here and uh, it's a fantastic way of life. Um, I think uh, one of the interesting things about journalism for me is that it doesn't seem to me to be very meritocratic on entry, Mm. but it's incredibly meritocratic thereafter. And what I mean by that, it's often the kids that can afford the internships or can afford to sit it out with low-paid jobs that get in on the ground floor at newspapers, but um, certainly thereafter, cream rises to the top. So the last editor of The Independent, Amal Rajan, was 29 when he was appointed, yeah. state school boy from um, south-west London. Uh, he was on the comment desk, I think, at 25, 26, as a quite junior, and he was editor at 29. Uh, ditto Ollie Duff at I, I think, was editor at 30, and these are... Uh, oh. State school, guys, state school guys just coming through and, and you know, our last standard editor was a woman uh, coming through very, very quickly and I think that's a fantastic thing about journalism so that's one thing I would say to aspiring journalists that if you're good, if you put in the work and you're talented, you can get to the top and I'm yeah. not sure that's that, you know, other, other, industry, other trades professions are as meritocratic And what, what kind of traits do you need to be a journalist? Do you need to be particularly tough and well, are you saying what trait do you need to be an editor or do you need to be a journalist? Because there are different things and editors need a whole range of skills that are not even journalistic, that they don't even realise. They need to be able to get on with proprietors. For First of all, and proprietors by and large are pretty difficult people, Yeah. Um, whether they're Russian oligarchs or whether they're difficult yeah. <laughs> aristocrats or whatever. You know, right. that, that's, a, that's a tricky, tricky, tricky role. OK, then I guess to be a journalist, what... Um to rise very quickly up the ranks. Are there certain traits that all those people you mentioned had in common? You need to be hungry. And I noticed that a lot of the kids, a lot of the young journalists that come out of privately educated backgrounds, they quite noticeably don't have the hunger. And I'm not saying it's entitlement, but they don't have the hunger that a lot of the young young people that have come off local, pre- local newspapers, they've come off reporting jobs, or they've done really quite menial jobs here. They often don't have the hunger, so you've got to have that real hunger, to, to, uh, and you've got to think beyond journalism yeah. um, about why the world works, why business works. And a lot of journalists, I'm quite surprised by the very low level of knowledge of um, of business. Yeah. So to have that, to have a broader, broader interest in the world and how it works, is is, is a key attribute for young journalists. You're obviously a businessman first and foremost. Um, how involved are you in the kind of journalistic process at all? Not very. Um, I have been much more so in, over, over the past few years, yeah. but at the moment, not terribly. Um, yeah, often I get involved in campaigns and um, editorial, senior editorial appointments, but but we, you know, the journalists know what they're doing. It's their it's their job. We have fairly fairly tough boundaries, fairly tight boundaries between journalists and the business side and the. Journalists know what they're doing, they should be left to it and they should be left alone yeah. uh, as, as far as possible. If you were now 28, which is how old I am, and you were looking to start a media entity, whether it was a website or a magazine or a newspaper, would you, for one, and what would it, what would it look like if you were doing it? I absolutely definitely would. Right. Um, 
it's so much easier now than when I was doing it because the capital costs are so much lower. Of course. Uh, the internet exists. You don't have to go and spend, I think we you know, spent £400,000 on on expensive computing equipment. Yeah. Uh, you, you don't have to do that anymore on the servers. Um, so it's incredibly cheap and easy to do. The problem is that there's a huge amount of competition as a result and everybody can do it. Mm. Um, so I think what I would do is probably, if I was a journalist... I would be looking to team up with somebody coming straight out of business school who knew that they wanted to be an entrepreneur, uh, had done something meaningful in business beforehand, beforehand and had used their time at business school to hone their, yeah. their business idea with, with you, perhaps the journalist. And then um, what would I do? What would I do? Um, not sure it would be a news site. It's tough to do because you need scale. I think it would be a curated e-commerce site. That's what I'd do, where where the editorial curation was a very very important factor. Okay. So you, you know, obviously, you know what Natalie Massenet has done yeah, with Metaporte, um, but the feeling that you're coming into a site where where there is editorial curation. If you we have a little thing called Independent Best. Um, if you want to buy a fridge and you look on the internet, page one you'll find Independent Best. We don't mm. pay for that, but because people know that it's the independent it's going to rank high on google yeah. whereas if you're what fridges or something you're not going to do as well so building up that editorial credibility and then marrying it to a high margin profitable growing e-commerce sector i think that's what i'd do okay interesting yeah. well mm. we, we shall see maybe i've sparked something in you <laughs> no, um, not in me but, no. but i might back it okay good <laughs> right, right it strikes me when we speak about people like geordie gregg and his his connections, that who you know might be more important in a game like this than what you know. Is that true? Uh, for an editor, I think that's important. I think on occasions we have probably overlooked an editor, someone who could have done the job of editing very well because we felt that person wouldn't have been the most comfortable in particular situations and networking and, mm. and pressing the flesh and the, the kind of ambassadorial role that an editor has. Do you enjoy um, that part of the, the job? I don't particularly know. No. <laughs> um, it's, 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 it's fine. I do enjoy the interface between uh, the, the shareholders and the uh, management. Okay. Uh, I'm sorry, and the editor. Uh, I don't mind the ambassadorial role, and probably if you'd asked me that question two years ago, three years ago, I said I really enjoy it, but hmm. I find I have phases in life for everything. You, know, okay. you, you do things for a bit, and then you want to move on and do something different. Yeah. I like doing transact. I like deals. The transactions are the things of course. That are interesting me at the moment. You're the Donald yeah. Trump of Fleet Street. You're no, a deal I maker. I don't think that's true. But <laughs> <laughs> Mickey Mouse of, of, of Fleet Street. Uh, how do you go about then, if that is the case, cultivating a network? If you if you've not got contacts from your parents or school, what what would you say to young entrepreneurs now who want to meet people and press flesh and build up their database? Um, just just be really good at what you do and then people will be interested in you doesn't really matter what it is if you're good I always think that doors open up you know opportunities open up and pretty much whatever you're doing if you're doing it better than anyone else you know it could be you know, luxury men's clothing journalism if you're mm. the best kind of people will want to know you and I'm, all, I'm always really interested how people like Philip Green will befriend relatively junior journalists who are very good at what they do. Um, so they can sniff yeah. them out. So I don't think you need to be a sort of massive social networker. And in fact, there are a lot of people who do that and there's not much behind it. And they come in here and pitch an idea and you think, you know, you're all about connections, but actually, are you, are, are you, are you really good at what you do? Yeah. And I don't think you are. And so 
So it's kind of boring advice, maybe, but just 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 being good at what you do. No, I think it's quite encouraging. People, people will notice. People will pick up on it. Yeah. yeah. And when it, you've obviously raised quite a lot of um, capital in your time, when it comes to raising capital for any ideas or projects people have, are there mistakes you see people make more often than not? Um, yeah, normally from my side of the fence. Um, but I think, um, I don't think, apart from my own business, I don't think I've ever invested in a business that has done what it said it was going to do in its startup business plan. Not ever, never. Uh, and things always pivot and, and change. I think being realistic about therefore about the value of an idea at the outset is is key and accepting that your backers you, if you want to be properly funded because a lot of lot of lot of startup guys think yeah we can wing it we just need enough to get by and something will turn up and we'll go and raise more finance after six months that's a really bad strategy because if that happens which it probably will rather than running your business, mm. you're then spending the next year, six months, trying to raise more money just to keep going. So you want to be properly funded in the outset. Therefore, be realistic about the terms that you're going to give your investor. This is a bit controversial. Avoid the venture capital community. Well, startups don't tend to get backed by the VCT world anymore, but avoid them like the plague. You know, that is money that will come back to bite you in the arse okay. down the line. Um, so that probably... Probably, if you're good at what you do, you will have a advertiser or a editorial source. You'll have somebody who will who rates you, who will be your your opening for money. Yeah, uh, and will will introduce you. But you need a champion, and then the champion finds you the other money. Right. You know, you're going to find it very tough to find it all yourself. The dodgy boy yeah. band manager again. Yeah. 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 <laughs> or you know your 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 parents' friends. Yeah. You know, that's not that's not a sustainable way to go. Really. Okay. I see. Uh, in my view. Do, do entrepreneurs come and pitch to you for investment? A lot, yes. Yeah. And what, yeah. what, what ideas are you really tired of hearing about? Um, what are the cliches now of the entrepreneurial world? People who think that the idea is everything. You know, if it is such a great idea, it's almost certainly not patentable and somebody more aggressive, better funded will copy it. So people who think it's all about the idea, that, that kind of bores me. But, mm. but people who have done something previously that is impressive and have really thought it through, uh, done all the what if, all the all the scenario planning and the sensitivity analysis in their in their financial planning. They've really worked, thought it through. They're the impressive people, and you can sort of tell. You know, I've made so many bad investment decisions and a few good ones. I now can sort of shortcut that process, and I I can spend twenty minutes with someone, and I mm. pretty much know I can I can discount ninety five percent. So it's as much about them and their demeanour and their experience. Yeah, and their the, absolutely their experience and their and their their ability at what they have currently done and why what they've currently done is relevant to what they're now coming and pitching yeah. to me. Um, I want to now go on to another one of your hats, which is of course the Felix Project, um, which is uh, which is a very obviously exciting venture that you set up in memory of your son Felix. Um, it's a charitable venture that redirects food waste. I suppose to people who need it. Yeah. Um, that's a, that was a huge logistical and personnel operation. What was your first step in starting that up? So the first step was uh, seeing the absolute idiocy of the fact that our food industry buries in a hole in the ground or spreads yeah. on crop seven hundred thousand tons of food a year. At the same time as half a million people in London are having to use food banks. Yeah. And seventy thousand school kids are going in London are going to school without having breakfast. I mean, the madness of that mismatch of supply and demand 
is attractive to, to, to me as an entrepreneur to, to plug that gap. And it's been really fantastic to find other people feel the same way. And that's suppliers, funders uh, and others, uh, volunteers um, have sort of seen the obvious common sense of that mm. because often things don't, aren't quite as, don't work out quite as simply as you see them initially. Yeah. So you use your kind of business and entrepreneurial head to, to help the kind of charitable cause? Yeah. Yeah. certainly to, 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 to set it up I can't say it was an original idea I saw it happening in Oxford two guys had started the Oxford Food Bank a very small charity on the same principle and I thought I saw how well it was working in Oxford and thought well this could work in a much better scale first in London and then nationally yeah um, and it's grown remarkably quickly in just the two short years that it's been set it up it has so we're now we're now delivering to about uh, 200 charities and schools every week and we collect from pretty much every supermarket uh, 168 suppliers in all um, Sainsbury's, Waitrose and then yeah. the specialists like Fortnum's and Plant Organic, Whole Foods, Harrods uh, you know, all of them uh, Amazon Fresh So that's, and also a lot of, lot of manufacturers like Tilda and, uh, and Muller um, delivering direct to our warehouse and then a whole load of people in London who I suppose I call them upmarket lunchtime retailers like Pret and mm. Paul and Gales and and Eat uh, and a lot of that food not not certainly not Pret who are brilliant a lot of that food is ending up if it's not been collected by us it's ending up in bin bags on the street uh, in London and that is a complete disgrace yeah. there's a scandal waiting to happen waiting to be exposed and I really hope that the government is going to do something about that because. Um, Apart from the fact it's terrible for these retailers' brands mm. to have bin bags outside their stores at closing time being picked over by local residents yeah. and other people. I mean, it's just it's crazy. It's crazy for them, and it's it's obscene that the, the really good quality food is just being wasted uh, yeah. when it could go to worthwhile places. And the problem for them is it it's cheaper for them to dump or to dispose of food in landfill or than it is to donate to charity. Yeah, and so something has to give. Um, to, 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 to so is get, that the next big challenge for you then? Certainly lobbying government is a, is a challenge. Um, but on the whole, retailers have responded really well and uh, we're getting fantastic quality food because unlike food banks, most of our food is fresh. So we're getting fruit and vegetable from MASH who supply you know, the top 100 restaurants in London. We're getting the best of stuff. We're getting game pies from Fortnum's. We're getting... Manuka honey from Dalesford. Mm. We're getting fantastic food, um, uh, and and if you're a food bank, you're tending to get tins and packets because yeah. it's donations from the public, and you can't have fresh food. So we're getting four tons of incredible fresh food a day out to Londoners who really need it, um, uh, that otherwise would end up in a hole in the ground. I mean, so that's it's it's really satisfying. Can't say we're brilliant at the logistics. You mentioned logistics. Can't say we're brilliant at that yet. We're getting better. Okay. We have an amazing network of 300 volunteers who who make it all work. We yeah. couldn't do that. We, it wouldn't work without them because, uh, uh, frankly, our donors would be better just giving the charities money to pay their phone, for food bills. And the charities we supply, most of them, have income themselves of less than 100,000. So for them to have their food bills covered by us either in whole or in part makes a huge difference to yeah. their maybe staying staying open themselves and not having to fold not having to close of course so, so how can our listeners then get involved with the Felix Project and help oh they can get involved lots of ways um, they can come and drive a van they're probably working yeah. so they can come and drive a van in Soho or Notting Hill in the evening uh, two hours 
turn up, smart key, um, clean driving license. Wow, um, what a great idea. It's a, you know, it's an incredibly satisfying way to volunteer because you're not shuffling papers in, in some back office. You are actually turning up, getting in a van, going to Whole Foods, picking up a van load of fantastic food and getting it out to night shelters um, in central London in a two to three hour shift. So that's a, yeah. but, but what we really want is regular volunteers. What we don't really want is one off guys so that's so people tell me it's the most satisfying volunteering experience they've ever you know they've ever they've ever had so that's the first thing they can do and then they can um if they're in the food industry please give us your food and if you're um um, if you can't give us your food please give us your money every pound you give us we will rescue about five pounds of uh food that would otherwise end up in a hole in the ground and get it distributed so one to five it's yeah. a good ratio. You want that's the sort of business you'd invest in. Absolutely, brilliant. Um, so those sorts of things. Amazing. Fantastic. Um, I've heard Justin that you've in fact just returned from the Vatican. Did you get to meet the Pope? I did. Wow. I did. I got to shake his hand. I didn't get to kiss his ring finger because he's a very <laughs> humble man and he um, puts his hand behind his back when the Catholics try and kiss his hand. He slept. But I did get a, a short conversation with him and I said to him. Um, he, I don't know if you know, but he's very um, food waste and food poverty are two of the two of the causes that he is very interested in. So I thanked him for his interest in that, and I thanked him for his indirect support of what we were doing. And I said that the Catholic Church has the greatest volunteer network anywhere in the world. And every Sunday morning, I drive a van for the Felix Project, and I deliver to the Catholic Church. But we have no help from the Catholic Church. And the Catholic Church should be out there volunteering for us rather than being a net recipient of what we do. I'm not sure he understood a word of what I was saying. He's Argentinian. <laughs> but there was a journalist there, so I got set and the journalist got to report it. So that was, that was helpful to me. And have you noticed already an uptick in not Catholic Not yet, volunteers? but I'm waiting. You're waiting? <laughs> yeah. Well, that's just, that's Hopefully a... you've got some Catholic... Uh, Catholic, I'm sure we do, Catholic, yeah. Catholic well, and there's um, a, a billion or so of them out in the world, so there are. So there are. hopefully they, we can tap into that. As I say, that. it's a fantastic volunteer network. Yeah. We, we want it. We want some help. Yeah, brilliant. Okay, <laughs> what a what a what a once in a lifetime moment. Yeah. To meet the Pope. Yes, it was. Who in the world of business do you most admire? Um, Rupert Murdoch. Okay. Because he invariably pays more than I think he should for his businesses and he invariably gets it right uh, and he's whatever 80 whatever and he's nobody knows the newspaper business like he does yeah um, he d- I, I, my father did had some business dealings with him and always told me how impressive he was what do you think you'd be doing if you weren't doing this well my friends always told me I'd be an antiquarian book dealer so probably that's what I'd have been doing. Well, there's still time. Yeah, there's still time. Maybe that's what I'd be doing. Uh, what are you most proud of so far in your career? The Felix Project, without question. Yeah. And what, what have you been your biggest regrets or missed opportunities? Oh, you know, um, at the time I always regret things, the terrible investments I've made, but yeah. they kind of all go towards making you the better investor that you become. So I guess I'm taking a sort of Zen view of it and yeah. <laughs> trying not to regret there are many bigger things to regret than than business, you know, errors you've made in your business. Yeah. Life. So I, I don't regret those too much. Of course. What What's the one journalistic cliche you'd like to banish from your newspapers? Um, I would love journalists to stop telling the rest of the world why they should change. Journalists are, you know, they're 
I love them and I've got lots of friends, but it is the most recidivist profession in the world. <laughs> if you ask them to change, they, they, they don't want their desk moved by one foot. But uh, this sort of default need to tell the rest of the world yeah. why they must change and what they're doing wrong and why somebody must be for blame to blame when something goes wrong and that why it must always be a person, never a system, never a strategic failure, but a person. I'd love, love journalists to look beyond that. They often do, but they often don't. Okay. So I hope that I'm, I've answered that question. Okay, <laughs> that's an impassioned answer. Um, what is your most treasured physical possession? Uh, it would be any one of my photographs of Felix. Mm. Is there a book that's influenced you the most? Yes. Um, yeah, but you're, if you're asking me about a business book, it wouldn't be a business book. Um, <laughs> um, I don't... Uh, if, it was, if it had to be a business book, it would be The Economist Book of Style which um, is probably 30 years old now, but... Um, and that's a style guide for writers. It's a style guide for writers, yeah. and it's a fantastic guide. I mean, I know there is a house economist style, but the clarity, simplicity, and directness of the way that magazine is yeah. communicates itself is fantastic, and the style guide, I've no doubt, is partly to do... Partly to... Yeah. And do you have um, a personal motto, finally? I don't, but I guess if I tried to come up with one for you, it would be just do stuff. Don't worry about getting stuff wrong. We know we endlessly take risks. Here, we get some of them wrong. You take a newspaper free, it works. You launch a new newspaper, it works. You take the independent uh, digital only, it works. But there are plenty of things that don't. Don't worry too much about, about yeah. that. But learn quickly, move on, uh, and get the next thing right. But don't get paralysed by analysis. Um, try stuff. Brilliant. Uh, and learn on the job. Amazing. Justin, thank you very much. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Gentleman's Journal podcast. We'll be back in a fortnight with more invaluable insights from the worlds of entrepreneurs, raconteurs and tastemakers. But in the meantime, you can read more at thegentlemansjournal.com or follow us on Instagram if you're so inclined, at thegentsjournal. Thanks again for listening and we'll see you very, very soon.